Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 223. We are now in the second week of what's called the Shiva Dinechemta. These are the seven weeks of consolation and comfort that follow the three weeks of affliction. Plus the Puranusa, this is an expression from the Talmud that talks about Haftaris, that every week when we read the Parsha on Shabbos, at the end of the Parsha we read the Haftaris that's usually associated with a theme within the chapter. But there are exceptions. There are exceptions when it comes out of Rashkhidish, Rashkhidish, but there's an ex- another exception at the end of this period in time when it comes to the three weeks. So it says, Tlosid the Puranis, and the three weeks between Shavasa Batamas and Tishabav, we read not from something connected to the Pasha, but something connected to the time, which is the time of affliction, Puranisa. Affliction referring to, of course, the tzaddas and the tragedies that happened in that three-week period. So each week we read that. Then followed by, that is followed by Shiva Dinechemta, the Gemara continues. Seven weeks of consolation. These are the seven weeks that follow from after Shabbos Chazain, which is the end of the three weeks. The, three, the third Haftar starts Shabbos Nachmu, which we just read yesterday. Nachmu, Nachmu, Ami. The first week of, the, of consolation and comfort, Nechama. Then comes this week, week two, week three, and this will go seven weeks until Rosh Hashanah. And then that's followed by Trey de Tiyufta. So three, seven, and two of Tshuva. That's the two weeks, depending on the schedule of the year, but basically between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot, there's usually two Shabbosim, and, well, always two Shabbosim, and depending on when it is, when Shabbat Shuvah falls out, we read two Haftarahs connected to Tshuva. So affliction, comfort, Tshuva. This just is another way that reflects a tremendous psychological and emotional application to our lives of how we deal with every challenge. So this period in time, like the Jewish calendar is all about energy, time is energy. So the flow of energy and the cycle of time is a mirror for us to align ourselves of how you deal with affliction, how you deal with the comfort that comes, that follows affliction, follows challenges and follows difficulties, and then reaching levels of two trade to yufta. There's a fascinating mimer from Rabbil Paracher that we've discussed, I believe, previous years, where he talks about these three, seven, and two, and the Rebbe cites it in some of the sikhs in the later years. But I want to just talk about, since we're in the second week, I thought it was a good way to begin, because one of the most important things in any application of life, in every application of Torah to our lives, and Chassidus to our lives, is dealing with challenges. How do we grow? How do we not be overwhelmed? How do we not become bitter and angry? So in these weeks, we actually have a blueprint for doing that. So what I'll try to do in the following weeks, each week share one thought connected to the, this, this progression and this uh, series of seven weeks of Shiva Dinechemta. And it's based on Avudraham. Avudraham was one of the Middle Age great commentators and halachics, halachists, who wrote a sefer, there's, we have Shulchan Aruch, but there were those that codified through a svarim on time and on periods in time. And he writes, bringing, citing a medrash, that these seven weeks is actually a dialogue between God and man, God and the Jewish people. After the destruction of the temples, of course, now that 
there's been this wound, this terrible wound of the destruction and all that it brings with it spiritually and physically and emotionally and psychologically, God sends the prophet, says, Nachmu, Nachmu, Amui. Console my people. Console, console my people. Weak one. The Jewish people, however, are not consoled. They're not consoled because they respond, as, we just, as we're going to read this week, they respond, Azovani Hashem, Va'adnai Shichachoni. Zion says, you have forsaken me, God, and you have forgotten me. But you were just consoled. So why are they saying this? I've explained to David Ram based on the Medrash, because God destroyed the temple. Why are you sending us messengers? You did the destruction. Why are you sending? Why are you forsaking us? Why are you sending a messenger? And God will respond in the next two weeks. We'll discuss that response. But this alone is a tremendous lesson. What is the lesson? Very often we may hurt somebody. We learn lessons from the divine in our personal lives. That what God does, that's what he tells us to do. So we learn from this. That many often we may hurt somebody and we don't have the courage to go ahead and ask for forgiveness. We send a messenger, we send a hint, we be evasive. We don't want to completely ignore it. So we do something. That's not acceptable. But here becomes the big question, so then why did God himself not come for say God was trying to avoid the situation? You can't say that. And the answer briefly is very straightforward. That God can console us is no bechidosh. Of course God can console and comfort us. He wanted to give the human being the ability to comfort another human being. That though we're mortals, and all of us can be hurt, and all of us can be wounded, and can feel violated, and one way or another feel hurt. So you would think, being mortals, someone in prison, someone in fetters, can't unfetter themselves, can't untie themselves. We need a force from outside to comfort us. God said, no. You're human beings, but I'm giving you my power. That's why he didn't come initially. He will come soon, in the fourth week, as we shall read. But right now, God says, no, I'm sending my prophets, I'm sending others to show that, yes, I'm giving the power of comforting one another. I will also comfort you. But I wanted to begin by humans comforting each other. Just as we can go visit someone that's sick, and it says when we come to visit someone that's ill, we take away, God forbid, we take away part of their illness, the same thing, we comfort each other, and we give each other strength. A tremendous lesson in perhaps the basis of so much healing and so many of the different type of programs and different type of uh, groups that are based on this concept, how peer-to-peer support can be a tremendous power. And it all originates right here in a model of Shiva de Nechemta that goes back thousands of years. It's also this week is going to be Parshas Ekev, this coming Shabbos, and also Mavarch Machedesh El, because this year Rosh El, the first day is on Shabbos, so this coming week, blesses El. Yes, it's already coming, El is coming. We also have within this week, on Wednesday, Chofov, the 74th, Yard site of the Alt Rebbe's father, Rablevi Yitzchok, Tovshin Dalit, we're now in Tovshin Ayeches, passed away in Almata in Golis, well, that's where he buried. And the Rebbe so much often described his own anguish that he could not honor his father for so many years and would honor everyone that even helped his father in any given way. Of the many things that the Rebbe did for his father, was, of course, we know as the as some of his manuscripts 
came out of Russia by the Rebbe's mother in the early 60s, late 50s. The Rebbe published it, and then in the late 60s began to explain it every week. First he explained the, the, the Rabbi Levi Yitzchok's commentaries on Geras HaTshuva, and then on Tanya, and, on Tanya, and then Geras HaTshuva, and Geras HaTshuva. And then in the early 70s, the Rebbe began to explain it on the Zayar of the weekly Parsha. And for years this went on. Besides being a tribute of a son to a father, tremendous insights into Rabbi Levi Yitzchok's style of Kabbalah. And that's why we will be dedicating the Chassidus question of this program to a Kabbalistic concept, a Kabbalistic idea, as it's illuminated by Chassidus. And the Rebbe would explain it often in Avedis Hashem, and usually saying his father did not explain certain things relying that we would understand it ourselves. And this became a whole um, series of discussions on Rabbi Levi Yitzchok's Teda. Many, many different levels of it as a lot of it is printed and edited, a lot of it is printed and not edited versions, but we have this rich resource. Because Levi Yitzchak was a rov, what was then known as Yekaterinoslav, and he was arrested for his also counter-revolutionary activity, similar to the Friedrich Rebbe, and uh, he died in Golis, sadly. We have today the Rishimus and the, and the notes and the journal that the Rebbe Tzinchana, the Rebbe's mother, wrote about that difficult time, and as also continuing writing afterwards. So what can we learn a lesson from Rabbi Levi Yitzchok? There are many lessons that can be learned from him, but one of the things that the Rebbe always would focus on is you see how he connected everything to the deepest levels of Torah. As he writes in one letter to the Rebbe, that whenever you teach an Indian Torah, make sure you're always grounded in the concrete foundations of Kabbalah. Because then you'll know it's Kaftir V'ferech, because when it's grounded on those higher, deeper, mystical, and esoteric levels, then you know it's solid, and kafta v'ferech is like a perfect fit. It means a flower and a kafta v'ferech, a flower, a, a button and a flower, but meaning the way the menator was made, that it's a perfect fit, perfectly sculpted. And you see this in the Rebbe's style, actually. We see this, similar to the Tzemach Tzedek, Grounding everything in Pardesh Abetayrah, above all, also Sayyid and Kabbalah. So uh, one of the things that you also see in this context is how the Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, the Diuk, Nifla, his precision, his absolute, uh, extraordinary precision of every word, of every detail in Zayar, and the person who said the idea, and all the questions that he asked, and you see that style also in the Rebbe, precision of details, but the details reflect the bigger picture of the message. One of the most obvious places where you see this is his famous Rishima, where he writes about his imprisonment. He connects it all to his name, Levi Yitzchok, both are Gvura, and connects everything, the five pl- pl- different prisons he was at, everything connected to the Hey Gvuras, to the five severities. What do you see in this? A man is suffering. And you can see physically when the, one of the pictures, the first picture we had of the, of the Rabbi Levi Yitzchok that the Rebbe saw, the Rebbe wrote a question mark. Is this my father? Because it didn't look like him. After all this suffering, and he had the very pale and very gaunt, gaunt. And later when we got another picture, which was also not a great circumstances, a picture of on by his arrest, but at least it was in the place where the Rebbe recognized him, you could see why it would be so different. So a man who suffered like that, had the presence of mind, not just the presence of mind, the spirit, to sit and connect it to Kabbalistic concepts, 
to explain how everything is Ashgachapratis and what not Ashgachapratis, the blessings, the curses, the severities, the gvuras, in detail. What does that mean? That means that's a person that's connected to God. That everything in life has a purpose, even the negative things. And in some way it was redeeming for him. In some way it must have been consoling. To be able to see how in all these things he see the gvuras of his life and the destined that God destined for him. And how he concludes many of his letters that God should be merciful to me and to my family, but primarily to him to get out of this God-forsaken place. Yet what we leave right now is, though there was great suffering, we, what was left, the legacy, is the elevation. And you can see from that the Rebbe's approach also to negative things in life. Always looking, not always seeing always the positive right away, but understanding that it all has deeper purpose. I find it tremendously consoling, tremendously comforting and empowering to see a person of that caliber leave us such a document, among many other documents, where he actually describes in detail. He doesn't just write, most people just write, I was in this prison, in that prison, it's like a diary. No, it's all connected to Teda and especially to Kabbalah. I once heard a story of Levi was giving a drosh in a shul Shabbos. And it was the time Chassidim didn't always look at him. They said, you know, there's a Rebbe. They didn't always understand who he was. And some of them were skeptical. So someone was making a little racket and like somewhat disturbing. So Rebbe Yitzchak asked, what's bothering him? So, they, so the Chassid said, they want, he wants to know where's, where are you getting, where's Rebbe Yitzchak getting all this tater from? And his answer was, it's all from the Kut tater from the Alta Rebbe. Bring me a Kut tater and I'll show you the source. And there's no question that's correct, even though his style was very different than the language of Chassidus. One way, one way to speculate why he was perhaps exactly distinguished from Rebbe Chassidus. But what he did was he filled a, a particular dimension of connecting the ideas to Kabbalah through the eyes of Chassidus, because he brings plenty of Chassidus and you see the Bikirs. So a lesson for us is twofold. Thank God we don't have to give our lives in such mysterious nefesh today. But number one is that whatever you go through, remember, connect it to something holy, connect it to something sacred, connect it to something divine. It gives strength because it means life is not just random, it's not just an accident, it's not just meaningless. Everything has meaning. The second thing is the connection, to connect everything to Teda and to Chassidus and to Kabbalah, which means to be completely saturated, not just with doing things, but with just having that connection like when you're bound to something. When you see something in life, ask yourself a question, what's a lesson from this in Teda? It doesn't have to be a negative thing. And finally, of course, the mysterious nefesh itself, the dedication, the dedication to Yiddishkeit, to Teda, at, even at high cost to himself. Being the father of our Rebbe, clearly worthwhile paying attention. And of course, as the Rebbe writes in several letters, Mems, he writes that he's asking about kosher, nafshis, personal request that people on the day of Chafov should actually learn something from his father, from his father's Teda. Today we have Many, obviously, he's published books, but some of it has been translated, some of it has been explained. There's our Lakutim that, that may decipher it. It is a little complicated, especially when it gets into more Kabbalistic stuff. We also have a collection, not as much as we'd like, but at least there's something remains from the correspondence between the Rebbe and, the, and his father, 
both directions. Mostly, of course, the letters from Rabbi Yisra to the Rebbe. We don't have many letters from the Rebbe to his father, except sometimes here and there, Rishima, short Rishima. So it's worthwhile learning and connecting to a man who shaped, of course, the Rebbe, together with the Rebbe Tzinchana. I spoke about Chofov in episode 78, 128, and 174, which is why I'm not going over everything I've said then. And here's a good opportunity to mention Thank you for all your questions that keep coming in. Here is the place where you can submit any question. Nothing is off limits. Any comment, meaningfullife.com slash my life. There you'll also find in that section the archives of previous episodes like I just referred to, as well as the essays. I also want to dedicate this program, this special program, in honor of newborn Shana Batya, Batya Minsky upon her birth on the 12th of Menachemov daughter of Yossi and Chevet Minsky, that may they have much great nachas from her, from their entire family, all in good health, and fulfilling the Rebbe's kavona and purpose. Every new soul brings down a new mission in its own way to fulfill that kavona and that goal, that calling. Okay, Chafov. So that's some cross-reference. Here's also an opportunity if you want to dedicate the program or a series of programs. It's a great opportunity to honor a loved one, the memory of a loved one, um, it's also an excellent opportunity. This reaches a lot of people to announce your company or something else that you'd like to share that people can connect with something Chassidus applied. So please go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship and there you can make your generous donation and dedication as well. Okay. We spoke about Shiva the Nechemta. There's Ekev and Mevorech Machedish El. So first some cross-referencing, because I don't need to repeat things I've already spoken, it's already recorded, it's archived, available, and time-stamped, I should add, in the YouTube channel of the videos. YouTube has that service, and, we've, and we fully use it, utilize it, where you can actually get, find the exact subject, and click on it and go straight to that link. It's also a good opportunity to mention that all these programs are also uploaded for your convenience for podcasts. Okay. So just say two short vertlach about Ekev and, uh, and Shabbos Mavarchim Elul. Ekev, of course, has many meanings. And one of the meanings is connected to Ikvisid the Meshich and the language of the Tzamech Tzedekim, Achshav Ekev, the heel, meaning generations of history are like structure, like the human body. Adam Arishan would be the head. And when, right before Mashiach is the heel. And now is the time, Ekev Tishmon that we should reach a place where should finally come the Gula. The Rebbe speaks about this in a number of sikhs of Ekev Nunalef and Ekev Tafshinun. Every year the Rebbe spoke about it in some way or another. There's a beautiful sikh, I believe it's Tafshinun. I may be... In, where the Rebbe speaks about Schar Mitzvahs, because Hoi Ekev Tishmun is because, Ekev also means because, due to the fact that you will listen, the Schar talks about the idea of Tzachar Mitzvahs in a very interesting way that you don't usually find, just pointing out to that. The connection to our time, of course, is Elul is the Akev of the year. It's the last month of the year. And, of course, it's rich with messages that are connected to Chassidus applied because it's a month of reckoning and accounting. The Cheshman al-Shana Shavra, when you come to the heel, you come to the end of a period, the end of a year, you make an accounting for everything that happened. And Achana, preparation for the new year. So it's like the Rebbe speaks about graduation. Everything that comes to a certain stage ends, you're only to step to the stepping stone to the next stage. 
So El concludes the years, the Ekev of the year, to only lead us to the Reish of Rosh Hashanah of the next year. Ekev Reish. The heel leads to the Reish Hashanah. That's one thing. So there's the connection Ekev to El. As far as El itself goes, I'm going to talk next week about it, obviously, more after since it's Rosh Chodesh El. And as it accelerates, El accelerates. But I will say, in case you're not familiar, I have a book called 60 Days. 60 days is actually a journey, a spiritual journey through the high holidays, through two, the, to these, through these two rich and powerful packed months of El and Tishrei. And it's a workbook every day. You go through it every day by day, and it leads you to a journey towards having a more meaningful... Because the more you prepare for something, the more you are enriched by it. That's why 30 days before a holiday we begin to study. It's like research. You're going to go to a very special meeting. You don't just fall in. The more you prepare, the more you'll experience, the more you'll be able to partake from, and benefit from, and excavate the treasures of that particular period. Since we're entering, in a week from now, we're starting as Chedr Shaul, so it's the beginning to start preparing for preparing for Rosh Hashanah, and this book is an excellent way to do so. We send out a daily email. You can also um, find it online. A, actually travel through this journey and make much more palatable, much easier to do when you're doing it day by day, instead of doing it in a one big shot, one cramming session. So, that is some words about Ekev and El and Shivda Nechemta, as well as, as I said, the cross-referencing I already mentioned. Um, I'll give you some more cross-referencing for Shivda Nechemta, Ekev, Shabbos Mavarchem El, episodes 78, 128, 30 and 31, 34, 79 and 80, 129 and 175. The good news is, after many years, it's already fifth year that we're doing My Life Exodus Applied. So you can imagine these topics every year, they come up, they're different kvias, and so the topics are addressed, and, uh, and that's a, so we can always use the time to go into further topics or other topics. And as, as you shall see, this is a, quite a rich session here, episode, due to your, your questions and your input. So let us go now to next question. Can I, can I write a pidgin to other Rebbes or only to my own Rebbe? Can I write a pidgin nefesh to the previous Rebbe or the Rebbe Rashab, etc., or to other non-Chabad Rebbes, or do I only give a pan to my one Rebbe? To my one or to my own Rebbe? Okay, it's a good question. I don't know if there's halachas involved in this. Um, let's just lay out the, the issues on the table. On one hand, we know that a Rebbe is not Einer. A Rebbe is only one. It's like one commander-in-chief, one Koyen Godel, one Teir, one Moshe Rabbeinu, one Ebeshter. As we read, the Pasha Kedach, and the Mepharshim, the Rashi, and the, the Medrashim bring. A Rebbe is not Einer. As the Rebbe once said, you'd base Thomas Tovshin Chofei, in response when he asked the Friedrich Rebbe a question about the Mitla Rebbe and Tzamech Tzedek, Tzamech Tzedek, during the life of the Mitla Rebbe, did some things that were a little that based there. So the Friedrich Rebbe dismissed it and said, Vosretz, he said the Rebbe's name, a Rebbe is not Einer. Daber echad l'adeir. Einshnei dabarim l'adeir. There's one famous story brought in Lekute Deburim, where one of the, one of the Rebbe's approached a chosid from the middle Alta Rebbe and offered, he said, you've been by the Alta by your Rebbe, come to me, I'll give you a new derech and aved. And he refused. He said, why? Do you reject me as a Rebbe? Am I not a Rebbe? Are you not a chassid? He said, Pan tapan. 
the famous expression, Ukrainian, a Rebbe you are, but not mine, a Chosr I am, but not yours. So you see a certain element of loyalty. It's not just loyalty in a, in a, in a petty way. It's a connection. This is the place, the Amshacha, the Tzinur, your channel of brachas, your connection, your Seder Aveda. Like we say with the Shvatim, every Shevet has its Nasi. You don't go to another Nasi. That's your Nasi. That's your Rav. I'm Koshkem Vakav when you're talking about a Rebbe of a generation. This does not take away from someone other Rebbe's value. Not a, not a Pashta. Meaning different rivers spread different directions, there's different customs, and you absolutely respect that. But you could argue in that case, so a pan goes to your Rebbe. Someone, but someone could ask the question, what's wrong if I get more blessings than one? So the answer is not so much a problem technically, but it's a, a matter of a hergish. It's your Rebbe. What are you going to someone else? Not because anything is wrong with that person. That person may be a great Rebbe and maybe a great chassid. So I cannot answer this in a black and white way. It's like the Rebbe says about Gimel Tammuz. Someone asked whether they should, should say Tachron and Gimel Tammuz. So the Rebbe said, Toli behergish val hergish ain't shailin. It's telling you're feeling and on a feeling you don't ask. I would say similar to this. If you have a question, you should talk to your mashpia. I cannot, I don't know the, the, the person asking this question. I don't know the circumstances. But I could just tell you, overall, what I just said is general the picture. But if you don't feel that way, I'm not here to convince you. I'm not here to persuade you. I can make the case for it and then do as you see fit. The case, again, is this connection. You have your connection. So your shit, your derech, your uh, connection to your Rebbe. Now, we're giving pans to previous Rebbe Rashab. So first of all, by us, we believe that all the Rabbeim are one. The Moir, it's one Rebbe. One Rebbe, different in Giluim, in manifestation, there's a difference. So when you give a pan to the Rebbe, you're really giving a pan to all seven Rebbes. I would say you're even giving a pan to all the Rebbes Bechlal. Because that's your tzinner, that's your tshar, that's your gate. Which takes it a step further, that when you give a pan to your Rebbe, you're actually, it's as if you go to other Rebbe. Why would you go to another Rebbe, this is your Rebbe? Any bracha the other Rebbe would give would also come through the Rebbe for you. So this is a little more stronger case not to do it. But I don't, I'm not of the belief to tell people not to do things, unless it's something prohibited. In this case... From a chassidish point of view, if you understand what a Rebbe is, you understand why you give a pan. What's a pan? A pidya nefesh. This is to mer rachmim rabim. A lie on yourself. You don't write this to everybody. You write it to a Rebbe. So in that case, there's a certain exclusivity, I would say, in answering this question with all the qualifications that I made. Okay. I would also refer you to episode 121 where I talked more what is a pidgin. Because I think that's the question that it really has to be asked. What is a pidgin? Why do we give opinion to a Rebbe Bechlal? And I believe once you know that, it'll become obvious whether you should be giving to more than one Rebbe. My grandfather, just to tell a small story, he unfortunately died prematurely. He was one of the ten that signed the Christmas Bris that made this blood pact and the covenant with the Friedrich Rebbe to give their lives for spreading Yiddishkeit. He made it, but he, was, he suffered greatly. He was arrested in Siberia. They tortured him. He ended up coming to Toronto, where him and my grandmother passed away in the early 50s. So on his deathbed, he was already at the end of his life. He was the Genemachle and other tzaddas that he had. So someone who was in the room told me that he was literally, you know, it was the last day or two of his life. Someone came in, 
said Rab Simon, I'm his namesake, so he said, Rab Simon, he told my grandfather, I have Absurda Teva, good news. I went to this and this Rebbe and asked for a bracha for the four shlema. Not, that, not our Rebbe. So my grandfather, he says, got up on his elbows. This may be a little controversial, but I'll say it anyway. And he said, I'm not Meichel, you not Bezeh, Nishbaba. I don't forgive you, not in this world, not in the world to come. Why? Because what are you giving, asking a bracha for me? I have my connection, my tzinin, my hamshachas chayis comes from my Rebbe. Is this a heirah rabim? Take it as you see as you see fit. I wanted to tell the story in the context of this discussion. Okay. Now let us go to the next question, and that is about schools. Here we are. If a school is doing things counter to the Rebbe's directive, is it considered a Labavitch school? Okay. I assume this is coming somewhat as a follow-up to a discussion I had in episodes 199 and 200 about a Labavitch shul. Do you feel, as a Chabadnik, do you feel that you're loyal to only Davin and Labavitch shul? Or if you find another shul more comfortable, should you go there or could you go there? I also refer you to episode 69 about taking children out of a Chabad school. Here's the way the writer writes the question. If a school is run by a Labavitch, is it automatically considered a Labavitch school? Say Lubavitch school starts doing things counter to the Rebbe's directives. To the Rebbe's directives. Counter to the Rebbe's directives. At what point would you say that they are not a Lubavitch school? In which case, the Rebbe's directive to many Lubavitchers to send your children to Chabad school, despite the fact that the Chinuch was not on par with other Jewish schools in the area, would not apply. In other words, if that's the case then the Rebbe's directive to many Lubavitch to send their children to Chabad school, despite that their chinuch was not on par with other schools, would not apply because the school is no longer a Chabad school if it's not following the Rebbe's directive. That's how the questioner questions. Thank God there's no names being read here, and I wouldn't read them even if it was submitted, because this is not about pointing fingers, it's not about being critical. But it's a good question, and I think we have to go back to determine, number one, what are the Rebbe's directives? And who decides what these directives are? And how do we prevent the abuse of this where somebody can decide, you know what, I don't like this school, it's not following directives as I understand the Rebbe's directives to be, and therefore it's not Lubavitch school. So I think we have to be a little humble in this whole process. We do not live in a perfect world. There's no school that's perfect, including within Chabad. That's not because Chabad isn't perfect and Tate is not perfect, it's because we're human beings. Principals, faculty, teachers, parents, students, we have or given solid guidelines of how to run good chsidisha chinuch al taras akedish. Chsidisha chinuch, yes, in the Chabad way, if we talk about Chabad. Remember this chinuch al taras akedish, the Chabad, but there is, like I said, nara nara pashta, many different rivers, every different paths, the itself. Kol echad Everyone follows their path. But we're talking here, the question is about Chabad. So what defines what is a Chabad school? What is, what is a Chabad? The standards that the Rabbeim and the Rebbe established. If you see something in a school where your children are going, or you yourself in the school, so we have directives from the Rebbe what to do. In order not to create disruption and not be disrespectful and also make sure that we're being true and we're doing things productively, you look into it quietly and discreetly 
You bring it to the attention of the faculty, you bring it to the attention of one individual. If you don't get a response, you talk to maybe some others. But the worst thing you want is machlekes, even if it has basis. Machlekes for sure is not a Chabad approach and not a Torah approach. So it's very important to qualify this. That's why I'm not just coming out with a, a jump and become vigilantes and decide we're going to go on a witch hunt now. Who's a Chabad school? Who's not a Chabad school? The standards have to be looked at. It has to be determined objectively. It could be you may not like something. That doesn't mean it's not following the directives. It may not be the way you understand the directives. Or maybe you don't even understand the directives. So it's very important to establish clarity and do this in an objective way. And not use it as a stick. Now let us determine, let us say Rabbonim, or people in the community say, yes, what's going on in this school is not following the Rebbe's directive. So I don't think it's our role to, to announce something is a Labavitch school, something is not a Labavitch school. Just like you weren't asked whether it's a Labavitch school, we're not being asked whether it's not a Labavitch school. So I think the approach has to be on an individual level, we're not here to, 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 you know, we're not the Board of Health that decides, okay, we're putting up a sign, this is no longer a Labavitch school. The way this works usually is when you don't follow the directives, automatically the school or the synagogue or the community is not Chabad because it's not following Chabad approach. God forbid if somebody, I say God forbid, decided to take down a mechitza and a shul, a Chabad shul. It automatically, you don't have to make an announcement, it'll be obvious because Chabad has a mechitza, just using an extreme example. The same thing in the schools. Now there may be different opinions. What's a directive? We know within Chabad schools there's so many different opinions. That people feel have a higher standard. Some people feel that's not a, a, that's not a higher standard. Even about higher standards itself, we have disagreements. Now, as long as they're within the misgetis, within the framework of appropriate disagreements, which means, you know, this, this one has a source for this, and it's not based on any one upmanship or critique, or God forbid, any machlekas and divisiveness, so what? Maybe it's possible. Ain't they saying Shavas? There are different opinions, different approaches, different communities, different schools for different types of it, all within the Chabad structure. Now, if it's established that a Chabad school is no longer a Chabad school, it was always following Chabad directly, is no longer doing so, and it becomes objectively so, yeah, you make your decision. Yes, you can then probably say, well, I'm sending my child just to this school. It has no, you know, I could send to another school that may be more Chabad, following more directives than this school. But this is case by case and very difficult to determine in a general, generic way where the question is not even, speci- even specifying what are we talking about? What directives are we talking about? As you see, I'm making very strong emphasis. Without knowing that, this conversation is very, very general. But I decided we should talk about it anyway. It's worthwhile. So if you want to follow up, either individually or privately, you could send an email with your email address. Remember, if you don't put your email address, we can't contact you because it's an anonymous forum. And we can follow this up. And I would probably advise that instead of, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be reading online, someone starts giving me too many specific details. It's not important necessarily to announce who's, which school is doing what and what different disagreements are and different matters. Okay. Next question. Very interesting question. I also, again, refer you to episodes 199-200 because there I spoke about shuls a little differently, but there's some overlap. Here's this question. Non-Jewish father. Dear Rabbi Jacobson. If my soul is Jewish, born to a Jewish mother, does that automatically make my body Jewish, even if my father is not Jewish? 
more detail. Dear Rabbi Jacob, I hope all is well. I have a Jewish mother and non-Jewish father. I just heard a lecture about the Jewish soul versus body. I realize that one's neshama and being and Jewish is determined by the mother. But if your body is half created by a non-Jewish father, is the body not all Jewish? Thanks so much. Related questions. Can we speak of the body as being Jewish? If my soul is Jewish, does that make my body Jewish automatically? What about a boy who doesn't have a bris milah? Isn't he still Jewish? Maybe the body is neutral until we direct it. These are the mysteries of how God situated situations and we need to go into the Torah. This is not some logical or common sense approach, not even a scientific one. Even though it is a rational approach, you have to bear in mind, yes, there are different types of souls. Every human being has a soul, Jew or non-Jew. Different types of souls. We've discussed this other programs. It's not relevant so much to this discussion. There is the concept of a Jewish soul, and we know it through the mother. And there's, and there's reasons for that as well. In other words, someone born to a Jewish mother is a Jewish soul. It doesn't matter what the father is. So even if the father contributes genes, DNA, contributes features, hereditary, and so on, fine, that's a personality. But the same is true with a Jewish father. He contributes that. But the Jewishness, the core soul, is defined by the mother for many reasons, which is not here important to get into. And therefore, there's no such thing as half being half Jewish. If your soul is Jewish, your body is Jewish. And yes, there is such a thing as a Jewish body. The Alter Rebbe explains in Perik Memtes and Tanya, Uvono Vacharta. These are the goofing. And when you say Vacharta, you chose, that's the body. But the body follows the soul. If there's, a, if there's a Jewish soul, there's going to be a Jewish body. There's no such thing as a Jewish soul. Well, I should correct myself. But in this case, where the mother is Jewish, so it's a Jewish soul and a Jewish body, and you could have beautiful features from your father. It doesn't change anything. Now, there's the concept of a convert, a ger. That says, ger shen is gayer. The question is asked, it should say, goy shen is gayer. A non-Jew that converts. Ger means a stranger that converts. Why? So it says in Svarim, because the ger, once he's this guy, it reveals that he always had a Jewish soul. The spark of a Jewish soul was always there by him. However, for whatever mysterious reason, God put his Jewish soul into a Jewish, non-Jewish family. How do we know this? Because the fact that he's pushing to become Jewish, which is not rational, and all despite all the resistance and so on, that shows that he's a Jewish neshama. But you cannot know that because his mother is not Jewish. So it's not there... It means the Jewish neshama comes from Hashem and it was put into a family like this. That's why halacha, a gear, halacha, according to Jewish law, is like a newborn child and it reveals that his soul was always Jewish and therefore his body too. Even though his genetic makeup is from two non-Jewish parents. This may require more explanation, but rest assured, you're a complete Jew. That's the bottom line. Now, what about the other way around? A Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother? Well, Jewishness goes according to the mother. The Giluim, like what tribe you're from, Koyin, Levi, Yisrael, that comes from the father. 
But the Jewishness comes from the mother. So if it's a non-Jewish mother, it's a non-Jewish child. Does that mean the child doesn't have features or personality qualities from their father? By all means, just like the other way around. But the Jewishness is the footman by the mother. Or, as I said, by Gir Kaloch. Okay, let's do a few follow-ups. And then we will do... Um, Okay, let's do the follow-ups. First follow-up is just a nice comment. It's nice to read about my life live. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for continuing these amazing classes for the past three years. So powerful and empowering every week. Thank you for your commitment and dedication to the community. Okay, thank you. Very kind of you. Follow-up to the lunar eclipse discussion in last week's episode 222. Rabbi Jacobson, in the Tisha B'Av video, you spoke about the upcoming lunar eclipse as a negative event that we have to transform into something positive. Personally, I find the lunar eclipse to be a very positive and exciting event. First of all, it shows a tremendous display of Azhuach Pratis, divine providence. The sun, earth, and moon are lined up just so in order for us to witness this amazing event. Hashem shows us other amazing displays in nature, but they are short-lived, for example, lightning, meteors. Or we, or, we, or we can't look at them. For example, rainbows. We shouldn't stare at them. And looking at a solar eclipse could make someone, God forbid, blind. So a lunar eclipse is a unique opportunity to witness a cosmic drama unfolding. And seeing the moon come back after being obscured gives us hope of Geula from our darkness. Which, by the way, I did mention that part. Also, contemplating that as the earth that we, we, that we stand on, that's blocking the sun from illuminating the moon, can make us humble. If we can make ourselves too big, if we make ourselves too big, we end up, too big, we end up obstructing things. Okay? All around, it seems like an exciting and inspiring event. I'm looking forward to it and hoping for no clouds to obscure this obscurva- obscuration event. Okay, thank you for your sentiments. I was referring to a Gemara that says it's a simira. And that was the note that I wrote to the Rebbe that I referred to last week. I did not say, just like I said then, and that's the Rebbe's quote from the Rebbe, that something that has positive doesn't mean it's 100% positive. Something that's negative doesn't mean it's 100% negative. There's many beautiful things you can learn from an eclipse, and I appreciate your pointing out some of them, and I, and I read them, and I agree with you. That still doesn't answer how we explain the negative aspect of it, which is the, the shadowing of the mazel, which is Israel, Israel connected to the moon, counting the moon and compared to the moon. So it has also some negative elements. But that's not a contradiction. So thank you for your comment. Next. Mashiach's birthday. We also spoke about episode 222. This was in regard to Tisha B'Av. Last Sunday was Tisha B'Av Nitcha, the postponed fast. And we spoke about the birthday of Mashiach and Tisha B'Av. So a person writes, Hi Rabbi Jacobson. To say I watch your class every week would be an understatement. I actually look forward a whole week to it and appreciate when you connect the Pasha and timely events both in the world and on the Jewish calendar. You mentioned what we can learn from Mashiach being born on Tisha B'Av, and you also mentioned the story about the cow, the temple being destroyed, Mashiach being born. Can you please clarify why Mashiach, which we are taught is central on the whole idea of the Torah and Judaism, is alluded to in the funniest of ways. We are constantly learning that Mashiach exists, exists from an extra word or a grammar punctuation. Why is it like that? Why can't the Torah speak clearly? A story of a cow is teaching us that Mashiach was born. More instances of grammar are in Shema to give the land to our fathers, the Jewish people singing Shira. 
I remember you mentioning in previous episodes about Bilam bringing down the lofty levels, refining the lowest, etc. My question is not specific instances, but more, why do we have all these specific instances and not just a clear directive, instruction, or chapter in the Torah dealing with this? To sum up, why can't we t- the Torah be clear about Mashiach? Thank you for your time and dedication to everyone. It's a very good question that even when the Rambam cites the Psukim in Parshas Bolok in the Nevoah's Bilam and in the Tzavim, you need to have interpretation. It doesn't say Asheren of Layata and the other Darach Kefik Miyakov, all the hinting to Mashiach and Gula. Why is it not specifically stated that Mashiach will come? There are different explanations that I have heard. I'll just give one or two. One of the explanations is because Mashiach, by definition, is something that is lies so-called in the fabric of all of existence and the whole purpose of existence, and it's for us to reveal. It's not just a nice reward. God says, do this, and Mashiach is going to come. It's part of our initiative. So though there are many Maimara Chazal that talk about it, and you find, in, and we'll soon talk about it, we find this explicitly in Yeshaya and the prophets, but in Tehra Shebek Sav, it's more hinted to than specifically stated. Tehra Shebek Sav tells us what you're supposed to do, you're not supposed to do. It doesn't have necessarily the reward and what the result of what we will be doing. So, but to, to say that it doesn't have it at all, you have a Shav Hashem Shfuscha and the Pesukim in Bolok and so on and so forth. On a deeper level, it's like we don't say the name of God is in the Megillus Esther. Why? God runs the show because there the show is ran in a way that God's presence was concealed. It was through Anes Melubish Bateva. And in some ways, that's deeper than a revealedness. So Mashiach coming is Behesach Hadas, is something that's beyond the revealed state of things. It's, as I said, hidden in, within all of existence. So that's why Tereh Sav, where everything is revealed, it doesn't state it in a revealed way. But it's sure alluded to, and, and, and very closely alluded to. You start thinking, what's the purpose of it all? The Rambam speaks about it in Hilchus Shuvah and Hilchus Malachim, that the main Yehudim, the promises of Mashiach, is in order, the Slayim Savachachom, what they wanted, in order to give people the ability to have peace of mind, to be able to serve God properly. And that's why you don't have the Yehudim Gashmi mentioned, because of this reason, as he explains in these places. So, now, why is it alluded to in the story, like a cow, or sometimes you say Mashiach comes from Zdaim, Mashiach's ancestry is also always very dubious and very comes from sometimes dark places? Like the Gemara says, that Avadja, who was a Ger, a convert, the greatest prophecies about Mashiach are in the book of Avadja. Why? So it says because Avadja was a Ger, he came from Edem, from Moyav, and from Edem from the Edomites, and the way you cut down a tree is with the axe that is made from the wood of the tree. Transformation comes from the thing itself. That's why Avadja is the source for, for these greatest prophecies. Mashiach comes from the darkness of Golas and from the darkness of the years that we have suffered. And by transforming that itself, that brings the ultimate Gula. Now if Mashiach had come in the beginning of time, would have been a different type of revelation from the top down. But the Mashiach that will come now, the Gaul that will come, will be from the transformation of Menei from the axe itself 
cutting down the tree. So as a result of that, that, that can explain why a lot of the ideas of Mashiach are come through always not straight, direct forms. It's through Eir Chazer, as Chazer says. Eir Chazer is from the refractive light. So it comes from, different, from, it comes from the story of Yehuda and Tamar, the story of the daughters of Light, story of Rus, Rus the Geiris, who was the grandmother of David HaMelech. Mashiach comes from Zdaim, it says, the Medrash and Chassidus explains. And the story of the cow, it's always coming from the world itself declaring it, which is ultimately the real transformation of the world of Geula turning into Geula. These are just a few points to be made. And above all, what's relevant to us is, is that even though it may not say explicitly so, it always clearly we've been taught. And like he says, when you read Yeshaya, it's verses upon verses. And same thing with other prophets, prophets that do talk about it directly. And when you really study Teda in its entirety, Teda B'Pirushanitna, Teda given with his Pirush, you see it very clearly. Besides the logic of it, that is the purpose of all creation. Okay. We talked in episode 218 about secular sources. Thank you for taking my question last week. You asked me to follow up to clarify my question. What I did not understand was what lesson the Rebbe Marash was trying to... Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm reading the wrong follow-up. Secular sources was we spoke about in episode 218. And there... Um, I spoke about uh, the, the, using secular sources for drushes and so on. So an interesting letter of the Rebbe came my way. I'm not even sure why I read that. It must have been left from last week. Okay. So I want to read this letter. If you want a copy of it, please send us a, a, in the forum your email address so we can send it to you. So the Rebbe writes on the 25th of Thomas 5726, and I want to read it. It's in New, in New York. Toshachavov. I duly received your second volume on Pirkei Thank you very much for your thoughtfulness. I take the opportunity to congratulate you on your method of developing the thought of a Maimar Chazal in a manner which not only reveals new insights, but also makes the words to the Torah more attractive and acceptable to the audience and reader. Seeing the practical application of the saying of our sages, turn it and turn it again, for everything is in it. You're surely aware of the common trait among Jews of wishing to make a personal observation about everything or challenging a statement for further verification and the like. No doubt this is based on the fact that a Jew does not like to take things for granted in seeking out the truth and its practical application in daily life, which is also your objective in your volumes. It is in line with the principle of Rabbi Yechon who found the Gemara above Metziah 84a, who when told of supporting evidence for a statement replied, don't I know what I said? Is it, it, don't I know that I said it well, but was more pleased when his statement was challenged, which presented the opportunity for further elaboration. My point of criticism is a general one, which regrettably is quite prevalent among many authors and preachers in the United States. It is when an idea is expressed, it seems insufficient that it originates in the Torah, but for some reason it is found necessary to look for support among non-Jewish sources, where the same or a similar thought is expressed. Presumably, the intention is a good one, for unfortunately, there are Jews who will more easily accept an idea in the Torah if it also has been said by some non-Jew. Obviously, the detrimental aspect by far outweighs the benefit. In the first place, it does not lend dignity to the Torah or to a Maimar Chazal if it has to be confirmed by extraneous sources. 
Secondly, it creates the impression in the reader that any idea in the Torah, of the Torah, which is not supported by a goy lahavdil, is a moot question. Furthermore, it generally lends support to the unfortunate attitude of my yemre ha-goyim. What do goyim, the non-nations, will say? Seeing that even a prominent Orthodox author resorts to it. There is yet a further consideration. A footnote in general has a double purpose. One, to verify a citation. Two, and this is even more important, to encourage the reader not to rest content with the quotation, which for obvious reasons has to be brief, but to go to the original source cited in order to delve more deeply into that source. And what was said before and after the particular quotation. Just as such a footnote is all profit, if the quotation cited is derived from Torah Shabbat 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 the written or oral Torah, the opposite is true if the quotation is from extraneous sources. Lahavda. For as you know, the Shulchan Aruch very reluctantly permitted the study of extraneous sources and under special conditions, as in the case of Rakachat Vitabachat, but certainly not for the general consumption. In other words, for enriching, or there was a certain exceptions with the Torah, where the Shulchan Aruch allows it, but certainly not for general consumption, where the Shulchan Aruch takes a very stringent view in Hilchas Talmud Torah. Had the author been anyone else, I would not have felt quite at ease to be so candid, but I am sure that you will be accepted above in the proper spirit. I mentioned only the hope that in regard to the third volume, with God's help, you will surely publish soon. My remarks will be taken into consideration with esteem and with blessing. P.S. Among my correspondents, there are rabbis and authors on various levels, among them such who excel in homiletics. And excel in homiletics. One of them particularly makes it his custom to begin a sermon on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur with a quotation from a non-Jewish source. Not always the wisest of them, not to mention the most pious of them. For several years I have been trying to convince him that there is surely no absolute necessity to usher in the new year or the Yom HaKodesh with such a quotation, that's Yom Kippur, which surely does not add to the true inspiration of holiness among the congregants. Especially those who belong to the so-called three-days-a-year worshiper. Why, I asked him, should you start with a goy, even before you have a chance to tell them something about Kabbalah, Malchus, Shamayim? Even granted that this would raise your prestige in the eyes of certain individuals, surely you're not in need of it, because you have a life contract. You can, of course, guess the answer with which my arguments were countered. Quote, accept the truth from wherever source, unquote. End quote. But of course, this principle is quite irrelevant in this case, for one would not have to apply this in the case of self-evident truth, such as twice two equals four, twice two equals four and the like. An idea and thought of the Torah, where the Torah Shabbat Torah Shabbat does not require extraneous confirmation. Needless to say, I have not been successful so far, although I have not given up the hope that I might eventually be able to sway him. Okay. Speaks for itself. Let's move right along. The right along is more follow-up, but I am going to leave that for next week. There's so much follow-up, I always feel bad that I can't always cover it all, but you know, there's always next week. I wanted to talk about parenting. But let's go to the Chassidus question, because it's a very extensive question, and more importantly, a more extensive answer, but a very fascinating topic. And being in honor of Chafov, I thought it appropriate to talk about this question that came in a while back. Just want to mention that questions will be all responded to, and this and just takes sometimes time because there is a backup. That's how it is. Okay, so this question is like this: the Kabbalah of the Ramak and the Arizal. What is the difference between the Kabbalah of the Ramak? That's Moshe Kardaviro, 
His classic magnum opus was Sefer Pardes Remenim, Orchard, the pomegranate orchard, and others for him like Alima and Er Yokar and so on, and the Kabbalah of the Arizal. Now you know that they lived in proximity to each other. As a matter of fact, the Arizal was Maspid. He eulogized the Ramak. The Ramak was older. The Arizal came later. But the Ramak was the preeminent Kabbalist until the Arizal came. I don't like the word outshone him, but outshined him, but he became the final say, so to speak. And their Kabbalah is very different. And, there's, and, and so the question is asked, being asked, what is the difference between them? I heard that one speaks in Toyu, that the Ramak speaks in the world of Toyu, and the other in Tikkun. The two worlds that we talk about, Toyu and Tikkun. What does that mean? And how do we re- reconcile that with the words of the Alter Rebbe on the Chodedi, that, are, that they are both essentially the same Kabbalah, the Ramak and the Arizal, with Arizal, Bechlal, Masayimana, encompassing both. Okay. So I do not believe I'll be able to cover all this in this first episode, so there'll be probably a follow-up. Let's begin from the beginning. As I said, they both lived in Tzfas, approximately in the year, in the year um, we're talking about 400 years ago. And, um, and, and both produced a tremendous volume of literature, Kabbalistic literature. So let's start with the sources. Since so is the Alter Rebbe, let's start with the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe writes in a mimer. It's a Hanukha from a mimer, but it's also cited. And I'll give you the sources. We'll start with this. It's cited in, in um, this is I'm reading now from my Mori Admur Azokin on uh, Maimur Azal, Shazel, and Tefillah, and prayer. So we have the Maimurim of the Alter Rebbe on Maimurim, on Psukim. But then we have them also on things from Shas, from Zayar, from prayer, and so on. So this is on Kabbalah Shabbos. The Alter Rebbe has a Maimur on the Chodedi. It's on page 456 in this volume. This is also cited by the Rebbe Rashab in Haggah on Sidr, on Sidrim Dach, page 319D. And also in the Rebbe's Rebbe Rashab's Igris Kedish, page 18. He also cites it with a little, a little change of language, but the same idea in the Maimer Vayita Eshel Tofresh Nun, that would be 5650, page 334. I'll read. He's talking about Kabbalah Shabbos. He says that Nusach Kabbalah Shabbos, L'Chodedi, was, was established, was, uh, was authored by Rab Shlema Alkovitz who was actually a brother-in-law of Ramosha Rab- 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 Karavira, the Ramak. And he says, Api Kabbalah Ramak Sal. And he continues, hefris, there's no difference between the Ramak and Kabbalah Sarizal. Elo, only difference is that the Ramak is Besaid Nekudis Levad. He spoke in the Seid, is like Seid Atzimtzum, you say the word Seid means the secrets of Nekudis, the doctrine of Nekudis are points. The Hainu Rakyut Sfiris, which means only the ten spheres, so it's more like the points, each sphere, and not as the Nekudas break down further in what we call the Skalalus, that each sphere has another bunch of dimensions within it. So Alter Rebbe is saying that the Brahmak spoke in Nekudas, the points of spheres, 
not as they are fully blown, which is a partsuf. A partsuf is a structure. For example, on a face you have eyes, you have nose, you have ears, a mouth. Those are individual organs, individual pieces. But a partsuf is a face, is the combination of all of them. So a partsuf is already a structure. So he's basically saying that a mock spoke in the kudis points, and not the structure, which is what Darizal did. You have to understand what it means shekhlulim mebiyah. It looks like he's saying kululim from all the spheres, but also biyah, I guess, also going into atzilis and to biyah. Shezeu ike kabolos arizal. So the kabolos arizal is more in the partsufim, not just in the kudus. Ava bechlal masayimona. Bechlal masayimona means within 200, there's 100. When you have 200, you also have 100. So sometimes you have something that contradicts another. Here he's saying that the arizal's Kabbalah encompasses Ramak's Kabbalah. The Mamele Yeshboi Kavonis Arizal. It has the Kavonis of the Arizal. That's the Maimon, as I just cited the sources. So the person is asking, we find in other places, we find that there is a difference. And that it's not just Bechlama Saimon. How do we explain that? As a matter of fact, as we'll cite some more sources shortly, there are places that actually say, they're not supposed to mix and not learn the two of them together. There's the, the Rameh Mepanoi, who, who lived in Italy, in the city of Pano. He first was Makabal from the Ramak, and he actually wrote Pelacharimen, which is a commentary on the Pardis. But later, Rabbi Sol Saru came to Italy, so he discovered Darizal. And his introduction to Pelacharimen, he writes about that he's not in any way shying away from the Ramak, but now it's a whole different dimension. He writes that, and he writes it in the... I'll read the quote that he writes. This is uh, the Pelacharimen writes this. Ramem Mipano, he writes the following. That the, uh, the Ramak spoke in the world of Blima, which is Toyu. So he introduces now Toyu. Obna Marizal, who dated Biyasede Ha'idra, Basically, on much higher levels, and including Atsilis, Tikkun. And then he also says that the difference between the Ramak and the Rizal is also in the way of learning. That the Ramak is the Pshat of Kabbalah, Pshat of Said, and the Rizal is the Said of Said. And he speaks about not mixing the two. So, how do we reconcile that? And what is really the difference between the two in palatable Chsidis applied language? So I'll read one more thing now. From the book called Sefer HaChizyenus, that's from the Rav Chaim Vital, he writes, that Nishonash Shin Lamed Gimel, three months after my teacher passed away, meaning three months after the Arizal passed away, the Arizal passed away in Av, so this is El Tishrei Cheshvan, three months, he saw Risi Bechlin Larav Meishe Kardavira Bepesach, I saw in a dream as he was by the door of the Talmud in Sfas. And I made him swear to me. I, I, I took a vow. I said an oath. Tell me the truth. This is the Rachav writes. And how they're learning Kabbalah there in the world of souls. Is it according to your way? According to my teacher's way, which is the Rizal. By the way, Rabchaim Vital also learned by the Ramak. 
But when Darizal, he met Darizal, he went over to Darizal. Was, there are some say it was after he passed away, the Ramak. Okay. And this is what the Ramak answered him. Listen to this. Both ways are true. Omnom, darki hi al My way is according to pshat. For beginners, bechachmezu, for beginners in this wisdom, and and the way of your teacher, the path of your teacher, is the primis vaikris, is more internal and more primary. And I, now I also don't learn only in the. Uh, I learn the way only the way of your teacher. The chida in Shem Agdelim cites this briefly in the Chelik of Svarim, Areches Aleph, Eis Nun Zayin, the Erech of Eir Yoker. Eir Yoker is the Sefer of the Ramak, his long commentary on Zayar. So we see here very two different ways. What talk is the difference? That's the question. Because of the limits of time, I think I'm going to elaborate on the question and I'll have to leave you all in suspense to talk about this more next week. But I want to just quote one or two more quotes regarding this issue. Yes, so we have, so far we see one place says Nukudis and Sfiris and Partsufim. There's some places it says that Darizal, that the Ramak spoke in Toyu and Darizal in Tikkun. That's in the Hagdomata Priyetz Chaim, in Dfus Koritz. The Rebbe Rashab actually cites this. No, I'm sorry. No, no. He cites a different. He cites Eitzus Chaim. I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. That the Ramak speaks in Toyu is also in the Hagdom of Eitzus Chaim, which is another sefer of, uh, of this Kisver Rizal. Also, Dvuz Koret, cited in the Rebbe Rashab's Maimer that I cited, mentioned before. Vayita Eishel Tofresh Nun. So Toyu and Tikkun is what is also referred to that the Rizal speaks that the that the Ramak speaks in Toyu, the Rizal and Tikkun. And I'm going to give a few more sources. Eimek Hamelech the the introduction, as well as Shar Elam Hateyu, chapter fifty-five and fifty-six. Okay, I mentioned the Agdoma of Pelacharimen already. I mentioned. Uh, uh, which is also very fascinating. Should I read that? Let me see. Yeah, I'm going to read that as well right now. So here's what he says, He says, that the, the, they asked the Rizal, that the Ramak and Sadiki say all those that came before him, the Kabbalists, the Ramak and the other Sadikim. So were they all everything they taught us to waste, God forbid? And he answered that they all spoke about Mrs. Hamalochim, the death of Malochim, which is the world of Teyu, the shattering of the containers. That was how God first initially created the world Bedin, but it wasn't sustainable. So basically he's saying that the first Mokobam spoke in the world of Tayu, in the time of Tayu. Kaidim Hazivuk, but the Kabbalah Seinu, which is the Kabbalah of the Rizal. 
is after the tikkun and the zivug, which is the union. That's what it says there. It's written in a language that's a little, he says, a little uh, not so always clear, but that's the point. And finally, I want to read one more thing before we uh, continue. And that is at the end of Eitz Chaim. A lot, a lot of papers here. At the end of Eitz Chaim, the Arizal, there's a piece that from the Kisferi, from the Arizal himself, that says the following. Bear with me. Okay. Here we are. He says the following. That the Ramban, my Nachmanides, and the Divrei Hashem, like Rabbi Nechunah ben Akona, they only mentioned the ten spheres, and they did not at all reveal the Partsufim, the structures I mentioned before. You should know, he says, they knew the Partsufim, but they spoke in a very concealed way due to the Merev HaGolos, the intensity of Golos. And they were not given permission to reveal that because of the strength of the Klippa then. And could not have any could not have anyone leaking it out in any way. being that we're now in Ikfis Meshicha, like in our generation, the end of times before Mashiach, the, these lights began, these, these began to be revealed like they were originally, and began to repair the world. So in the world was still the Mekulkul wounded or Mekulkul, um, you can say, corrupt. These lights were concealed. And therefore they only understood the ten spheres in a secret way, in the shade of Nekudis, points. Everything encompassing ten, but the Partsufim they did not, not reveal at all to them. And now, now is the time to reveal that. And then he says, and this explains and answers that even what I, we teach now really was hidden in their words then as well. But people came later, capitalists didn't see it. So we are revealing now that which was always really hidden there. So that just adds to the whole equation and makes the issue, the plot thickens basically. So I'm going to talk about this and respond to the question, that the bottom line question is, what is the difference between the two different, the, the, the Kabbalah of the Ramak and the Arizal, and how are we supposed to look at it, and how what is the meaning that it's Bechlal Messiah that they really, that the Arizal really encompasses also when the Ramak, when it seems to be very simple, Tayu is not Tikkun, Tikkun is not Tayu, Nekud is not a Partsuf. So we will discuss this more at length with more sources, and for now, I'm going to just leave this question until, as I said, we'll discuss it. Let's do the three essays. 
and we'll then see this as part one of this discussion, and we're going to do the essays now. The essays are... Essay number one, slow and steady, accomplishing goals the smart way. Mushka Silberberg, age 21, Lincolnwood, Illinois. A teacher, Lubavitch Girls High School, Chicago, by Rabbi Hertz. Living in, in an all-or-nothing kind of way is a fun kind of way to live. Seeing immediate results is exciting, just as living off of inspiration is energizing. However, there is one caveat to this, inspiration-fueled lifestyle. Each bout of motiva- motivation is usually short-lived. So this sounds, sounds hopeless, right? So, so she says that this essay, in this essay we will discuss some of the components that Hasidus brings to the table, concepts such as gvura, discipline, coming from being understanding, inspiration versus work, the power of many actions, and the virtue of habit. These concepts will lead to a systematic strategy which will enable us to live lives in which our goals become who we are. It goes through gvura, that comes from bina, inspiration versus work. A multitude of actions, habit becomes nature, and presents a uh, basically accomplishing goals smart as an acronym, S M A R T, set goals, modify action, repetition, time. And goes through a specific steps of how to do that. And basically, making goals and keeping to them is a very hard thing to do, but Chassidus teaches us how to do it in a sustainable way. Rather than pulling out all your cards at once and then crashing, Chassidus shows us not how to. Shows us not how to reach your goals, but to become your goals. Very well done. And you can see this essay as it's now being posted at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. Or when you subscribe to our emails, we send out these new essays as they are posted. Essay number two is Combating Burnout. Bring light to others. Bring light upon yourself. Chaya Mushka Kosovsky, age 19, Brooklyn, New York, Beis Chan Seminary. We all suffer from burnout syndrome, she writes, ever so often. Many of us have days when we resort to our mechanical mode and we operate on autopilot. Rather than feeling excitement, enthusiasm, and gratification, we feel helplessness, despair, and apathy. Then we tend to blame all our energy. Then we tend to blame our physical and emotional exhaustion on those people who seem to exhaust all our energy, and so on. How is one to combat feelings of burnout and to continue giving to others? How is one to keep his inner flame alive? and active when it feels cold and dim. In in letters that document the Rebbe's correspondence with those who wrote to the Rebbe about feelings of sadness, depression, and apathy, the Rebbe's directives indicate a number of methods that one could apply to a system in combating his feelings of burnout and can be done in a step-by-step manner. And this essay goes through doing that. Mindfulness, being a lamplighter, outreach... And bring it all down into action, speech, and thoughts, and primis, in a practical guide. So thank you for that. A very good essay as well. Much appreciated. Okay. And essay number three. Resolving political intolerance, according to Chassidus, Shmuel Gomes, age 26, USA. Not sure where. Okay. He who makes peace in the heavens may make peace for us, resolving political intolerance, according to Chassidus. In the 21st century, the U.S. has been increasingly plagued by political intolerance. This has caused communicative failure across the political spectrum and resulted in political polarization and other such problems. In a discourse by the Mittler Rebbe, 
It is explained that a similar strife exists in the kingdom of heaven between the angels Michal and Gavriel. Like opposing political parties, they disagree about how the kingdom of heaven should be run, as well as the values its governance should be based on. Yet despite this difference, they are able to work it together. The reason the Mitlareb explains is they realize they are both working toward the same goal, albeit in different ways. And, they're different, and that their differing values must both be incorporated in this goal to be achieved. The, this essay continues on to use the Mitlareb's model to apply it to our lives. Very creative, original, appreciate that. Applying it even down to the political situation and uh, polarization of our times. With a summary of PGVC, policy, goal, value, and commonality. Yes, it's based in Tereshchem. Very good. Very good. I take a lot of pride when I see these essays and the creativity and the investment of time and energy of these great essays. So with that, we will sum up and conclude this episode 223 of My Life is Applied every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. May these days of true consolation and comfort and only simchas, true comfort for all of us, those that may have gone through some difficult things, but comfort we all need. We live in a difficult life. And comfort, the ultimate comfort, the Nechama of Menachem of Menachem, the comfort of the Gula Amitiz Vashlema immediately in our time. And may you all have a very blessed week and may it be a Gula Dika week. So until next Sunday, everyone be well. Thank you.